and welcome to the Inside Out Group Podcast, where we talk about organizational leadership, systems, marketing, and more for your church or organization. Our goal is to help you redefine your culture from the inside out. Today, we want to talk about controversial topics that pastors and church leaders will face. Today, you have your hosts, Nathan Westfall and Michael Moore. How's it going, senor? It's going good. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I just got back from uh, Fort Lauderdale, Florida. It was 80. Oh, yeah. How was that? That looked like a a fun trip. It was just you and Judah, right? Yeah, it was me and Judah. Uh, it was it was fun, but it wasn't like a vacation type trip. Sure. And so, I was helping my mom, um, and it, we had a good time. But it wasn't like we, we, you know, we went to the beach and stuff. But I wasn't down there to sit at the beach. We went to the beach for a whopping sure. total of two hours out of the whole trip. You know, but it was oh, still yeah. fun. Yep. And and you know, Judah Judah had fun on the plane ride. Shout out to Delta. You guys knocked it out of the park. I know, so I saw that. Look like you had fun. We should do a podcast on how Delta um, <laughs> takes care of their guest and how the church can learn from that. Done. Making a note of it right now. Yeah, I think that would be good because I have a lot of great Delta stories. And I have a lot of really bad Southwest stories for everyone that flies Southwest. I am a avid uh, rebel against Southwest. And so just throw You're that out there for you all. anything that isn't Delta. Yeah, well, I mean, Southwest is like my last choice. I would fly Spirit before I flew Southwest. Yeah, okay, that's fair. That's fair. Um, All right, so I want to start off with what we did actually today. So today is Sunday. Uh, This morning at both campuses, uh, we had um, a series called The Q. I think it's just this week that we're doing it, though. Um, So I don't know if it's really a series, but... um, We had a panel. I know Rensselaer had four people. Did you guys also have four people in Albany? We did, yeah. We had four people and one moderator. Awesome. So we had four total, and uh, we had questions come in over the course of, I would say, the past two to three weeks, maybe a month. Um, And these questions were anonymous from people in the church. They could text in, do whatever, just so that we didn't know who it was from. Um, And it was great to see kind of these questions kind of hit everything from new beginner to a little bit of a deep I'm in my walk type question and even mm-hmm. things that kind of are in the church, but maybe shouldn't be a church issue, right? Maybe they're more of a political thing or right. um, things that the church needs to know its stance on, but it's not directly related to Christianity or the church, right? Yeah. Yeah. So um, if you're good, I'm going to go over these questions and we can just yeah, yeah. hit so, them as we did this morning. Yeah. So th- these are questions. These are not questions that Nathan is asking me. These are questions that came in from people in our church. Right. And we figured it would be good to kind of share our response and uh, really how to deal with this. And I think the purpose of kind of going over these is these are topics that every leader will face. Maybe not this exact wording, but you're going to face these topics. And, you know, scripture says you need to be ready in season and out of season. And these are things yep. that we have to be prepared to be able to talk about. And I think a lot yep. of time churches are afraid to talk about controversial subjects out of fear of losing people or offending people. But in our day and age, this is something that people want to know about. They want uh, religious leaders, they want Christian leaders to be able to talk about these things in a non-attackive, uh, attackive, is that even a word? Uh, no. Without attacking someone, there but being go. able to have a healthy conversation around it. Yeah, no, that was good. All right, so right off the bat, Let's do this one. I love the Rensselaer answer, so I'm going to see what you have. Um, Calvinists versus Arminians, what's the difference? 
Yeah. Go. So, uh, I, well, I'll tell you my answer, and then you get to share what you heard in Rensselaer. And so just so everybody knows, we had two separate panels uh, happening at the same time. And so I have not heard all of their answers yet. Um, I know what some of them were, but I would, I'm would i going to have to listen to the podcast to make sure they weren't teaching heresy, you know? <laughs> Yeah, so Calvinism versus Arminianism. So Calvinism is, and if you grew up in the church world, if you're a pastor or a leader, which you probably are listening to this, you already know this, but this is something that comes up a lot in our our church context. And we we really do have a lot of people from both sides of the the, uh, theological spectrum. And so Calvinism is based upon the theological beliefs and teaching of John Calvin. Uh, He lived from 1509 to 1564. He was a leader in the Reformation. And Arminianism is based upon the Dutch theologian Jacobus Arminius, who was around from 1560 to 1609. That's kind of a short life now that I'm looking at it. Um, (laughs) But what's interesting is uh, Jacobus studied uh, Calvinism and was a strict Calvinist. And then later, Uh, as he was a pastor in Amsterdam, and then he also taught as a professor at the University of Leiden in the Netherlands. Uh, He was in the middle of studying through the book of Romans, which led to uh, creating doubts in Calvin's theological approach towards scripture. And so this is really kind of about the same time where you you had Calvinism that developed, and then you had Arminius uh, that that also developed. And the best way really to look at this is to compare them to both, uh, one one on one side and one on the other side. Uh, Calvinism believes in, you know, we, we they call it a five-point Calvinist. Uh, they believe in the acronym TULIP, uh, T for total depravity of man, U for unconditional election, L for limited atonement, I for irresistible grace, and P for the preservation of the saints. And Arminius, uh, they emphasize conditional election based on God's foreknowledge. So it's man's free will through preventative grace to cooperate with God in salvation. Uh, Christ, his atonement was universal, um, and that grace is available for all, but it is up to us ultimately um, making that decision to to follow Christ. And kind of the text that I gave, <clears throat> and I'm not going to read the whole text because it was pretty long, but it was out of Ephesians chapter 1. And what I love about Ephesians chapter 1 is you see the argument for Calvinism and the argument for Arminianism at the exact same time. So at the first part of Ephesians chapter 1, you see God, uh, or Paul writing, and he's saying, He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Um, and then you jump down not too much further later, and I mean, just a few more passages, and it says, In him you also, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And so it really is. Uh, you see God's sovereignty at hand, and then at the, on the flip side, you also see man's response, which are which Calvinism is very much that it's all God, only God, and you um, ultimately have no say-so in your salvation, and that Christ died on the cross, <coughs> excuse me, Christ died on the cross for those who were elected before the foundation of the world to be saved, where Arminianism is Christ died on the cross for everyone, uh, however, not everyone will receive the grace of the cross. And so that really is kind of the big argument. And our 
that's the difference in our approach towards it at City Church is um, they both have aspects that are correct and they both have aspects that are wrong. And, and by that I mean I can sit down with someone in our church who's a Calvinist and someone in our church who is an Arminianist, uh, and we can still talk about theological fundamental beliefs uh, because we are centered around the conversation of Jesus. And so we really, we really do, uh, we are not a Calvinist church and we are not an Arminius church. We are a Jesus church. And you may say that that's a cop-out, uh, but by debunking it, or not necessarily debunking it, but by throwing that out there, it creates very strong, healthy conversation in the church. And it's a conversation I've had numerous times with people in, in our church. And so that was, that was the answer that I gave towards that. Um, what did they say in Rensselaer? They pretty much said the same thing, so I don't have uh, too many other things in my notes other than what you said. Um, Terry Rice was the one who gave that answer, so she went a lot into the history, which which you just did, which I think was great, kind of really going back at its fundamentals of who's John Calvin and explaining all that and the time periods of, of where it come from, right? I mean, she's a teacher, so that's that's where all that came, came out of. Um, but yeah, kind of pretty much the same thing. I really don't have much else to add. Um, it's a good answer. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, so going to the next one, what's the difference between Old and New Testament and the Old and New Covenant? <clears throat> so I didn't answer this. Uh, Jim Waltersdorf, who's our associate pastor slash elder slash host team leader slash jack of all trades. Yep. Um, he actually answered this and I thought he did a very good job. And so it's a two part question. When looking at the Old Testament and the New Testament, it is really one story about God and the redemption of the people of God. And so at the beginning, you have God and his sovereignty, and at the end, you have God and his sovereignty. And in the middle, <clears throat> in the middle, you have people's mess-ups and shortcomings. They meet a Savior. The Savior redeems them back to God, and they're able to uh, live out this Christian life with the working of the Holy Spirit that ultimately leads back to God. So it really, he was, he was explaining, you don't, don't look at it as uh, an Old Testament and a New Testament which it is, but like look at it through the lens of this is one story about the people of God being redeemed back to God, which I thought was really good. Mm-hmm. Concerning the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, uh, very simple, <clears throat> simply put, and there, this is a deep, deep loaded question that we just do not have the time to get into. But in the Old Covenant, uh, whenever you sinned or you fell short of God's glorious standard, you had to offer a sacrifice for the redemption of your sins. So you would kill a lamb, you would kill a goat, a bull, whatever it may be, and you would offer a sacrifice to God. In the new covenant, um, the new covenant, Jesus was our sacrifice. So therefore we don't have to offer a sacrifice because Jesus was the atonement for our sins. And so the old covenant, old covenant, wow, the old covenant (laughs) Uh, the Old Covenant is very legalistic and very. Uh, there's a lot of rites with it, and there's a lot of rituals that, that are surrounded by it. The New Covenant, all of that was paid for, and then we just have to walk in the forgiveness of our sins and in the confidence of the grace that Christ extended to us. And so it really is one of those things. Whenever you mess up, you just get back up and you keep going. Um, and so what Jim said, when looking at the Old Testament and the New Testament, we're on this side of the cross, so make sure to look at it through the lens of grace instead of the lens of the law. And I thought that was a really good answer. Now, I know this is a big topic with Ryan, who's our campus pastor. Did did he answer this question? Um, I think he and uh, Jen piggybacked off this uh, this question. 
Um, and they did a great job with it. They they really, as you said, Ryan's um, all about it. So they, they definitely had a good answer that you could tell. Um, it's almost like he didn't do any research on it, right? Just because he knows it <laughs> so well at that point, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, next question. What is the church's role uh, with men over women? Yeah, so that question, whenever it was submitted to us, uh, I think it was kind of worded a little incorrectly because men are the spiritual covering for women, but they we do we are not to lord over women. And so yep. <clears throat> every essentials class that we have, this question comes up. What is the women's role in the church? This always comes up in, in conversation. And, and to that, I would say where we land at City Church is we believe that there is one office, uh, or really, I guess, one office, one position, however you want to call it, that is reserved specifically for men. And so we believe that that is an elder. Uh, and we also believe that in order to be the senior leader, senior pastor, senior apostle, whatever you want to call it at your church, um, that is also uh, the role of a man. And the reason being is because men are supposed to be the priest in the house. Now, that being said, we have got dozens of women in leadership. Actually, most of our department heads are led by incredible, God-loving um, women who just love God and love the church. <clears throat> so the role the role is um, they are they are they are created, I think scripture says they are created, uh, they are created equal, but they are created with distinct roles in the working of God's design. And so uh, men are much stronger. Men uh, are called to work a lot harder. Men are called to be a protector and women are called to be a helper, to be a provider. And actually uh, the, the same word that is used to describe uh, women in Genesis chapter two as a helper is the same word God uses to describe Himself as a helper, and it isn't a helper as in oh I'm just going to come and help you. It's a helper who steps in where the man can complete the task because the woman is there. Where if the man was doing it on his own, he would not be able to complete it. And and so I think that that's really cool. So yep. men and women uh, have very distinct roles in the context of Christianity. But there is not a lordship, so to speak, where men are more dominant than women. And any church that teaches that, look, I, I don't know where, again, this kind of goes back to um, where you land doctrinally and where you land denomina denominationally. Uh, but, you know, I know churches where if you're a woman, you can't even speak to men. And I just right. think that you're yep. totally butchering the context of Scripture. Um, yep. And just think about Jesus's ministry. How many women were involved in his ministry and how many women did he minister to? Like Jesus had a special place uh, for the women because they were looked down upon in the Jewish culture. And that is not the way that God intended it. And so I think that if a man is operating in the gifting and in the role that God has called the man to, then a woman should be flourishing in her role that God has called her, her to. And they are co-equal, uh, but with different distinct roles. And it's the same thing in a family unit as well. Uh, and so that's kind of where we land with it. Um, I mean, you know, now you come from a different background. Maybe you have a different view. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, Nathan. I know we've talked about this in the past, but kind of maybe some experience that you've had in this area. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think of one. Um, 
I know it was kind of a mix growing up, right? So it was kind of um, not men over women, right? I don't even like how that's worded, but it's more like just uh, there was definitely a clear distinction between the roles, right? So um, very much uh, men have to be the one to do this compared to women, um, but they worded it in such a way that didn't belittle it. Um, And then, you know, going towards the end of the life of that church and moving on, it was kind of more... Um, women could then preach and all this other thing. So I kind of got to see it uh, move from one perspective to the other over the course of a couple of years, which I think was great um, to see kind of the breakthrough in that church too, just the transition, um, yeah. not just be stuck in their old ways, right, but actually see that transition. Yeah, that's awesome. That, that's awesome. And and I'll say this, like women teach in our church, uh, women preach, they lead groups, they lead worship, they lead kids ministry. They do all of that stuff. Women yep. can even be pastors. We even ordain women in our church. Uh, we just reserve the role for elder in in our context, lead pastor or senior pastor for the role of a man. Yep. No, that's good. Um, next question. Why can't we be socially liberal? Um, why do we have to hate them? And I want oh, you to explain lo- this question a little bit too. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so I loved this question. This was a phenomenal answer at the Albany campus today. Um, I was I was assigned to answer this question, and I think everyone actually answered, kind of said something about it. And so first yeah. off, we uh, do not have to hate them. And if we actually hate people who would consider themselves socially liberal, then we need to check our heart with Jesus. And so this is and this is the danger of preaching politics or a political perspective in the pulpit is you're going to cut off half of the people that you're trying to reach uh, when really you're not even teaching a clarified truth. You're probably teaching your political perspective and putting scripture to the side of that because scripture is very clear. And, and now let me just pause right here. Uh, social liberal could mean multiple things. I believe what this person was pertaining to is socialism. And so Christianity through the lens of scripture is actually more like socialism than it is like capitalism. And whenever I said that today, you saw some eyebrows raise up and it was awesome. And here's what I mean by that. In Acts chapter two, um, all the people came together, they sold their possessions and they gave to anyone who had a need. What is that? That's socialism. Paul, he goes from one church to another church. He takes Church. He takes money from a rich church to go give to the poor church so that the poor church can provide for the needs in the community. What is that? That is socialism. And so Christianity is very socially liberal as far as socialism goes to speak. What we did say, though, <coughs> is nowhere in Scripture do you see the socialism in Christianity being portrayed or mandated or projected onto an actual government. Actually... Mm-hmm. Christianity in the first century stayed out of politics completely. Jesus even says, um, pay Caesar what is Caesar's. So follow the laws of the land. Pay Caesar's, take care of Caesar, and do what you're supposed to, legally speaking. But in the context of Christianity, uh, we are all about helping each other. We are all about providing needs. And I'll just say this, which you may disagree, not you, but if you're a listener, and I'd love to, again, love to have this conversation with you. The church is supposed to take care of the church first. We're supposed to take care of people in the church before we start taking care of the needs of the, the world around us. Uh, yes, we are called to the world, but we are also called to our to our church. And so if we have a widow or if we have someone who is suffering or a single mom, 
who's going through hardship, we need to be able to provide for her and take care of her, uh, provide, maybe pay some bills, pay a rent, rent month, whatever it may be, before we just start handing out money to all these outside organizations. We need to be able to take care of the people in there. And so Jim, uh, what I love that he said is he said, I am a social liberal. I am a physical, uh, phys- physically speaking, I am a conservative but I'm also a libertarian, and I loved how he answered that because it kind of mm-hmm. everyone kind of chuckled because it's a little bit of a little bit of all three, right? Yeah. Um, but but what he was saying, which I loved, is that socialism happens best whenever people are doing it out of their own doing and out of their love for Jesus, and they're taking care of their neighbors the way that Jesus took care of their neighbors. Um, yeah, and and so. And I, and I totally agree with that. And so what I said is we are probably one of the most socially liberal conservative churches in the capital region. And and I do mean that. And and that's really examining. And this is not something that we just, you know, um, came up with last night. This is something that, that we've really examined through the lens of Scripture, especially in the political climate that we live in in New York. Yep. Nice. That's great. Um, what what was y'all's response? Do you remember your response? Not yours, but theirs. I don't remember it off the top of my head. Um, so some of our we'll questions were were yeah weren't in this answer. Um, yeah, we did record today, so uh, we will include that link to the podcast after this episode. Um, cool. So next question: How do we simultaneously love and accept uh, someone, show them grace, and still call them to a higher standard? Yeah. So. First off, we're supposed to love everybody. Bottom line, we are supposed to love everybody. Good Samaritan, Jesus talks about that. Jesus says the greatest commandment is this, and then to love your neighbor as yourself. Who is your neighbor? Everybody. <clears throat> and we are not to judge. Let me make this very clear. Scripture is very clear about we are not to judge uh, someone who is not a believer we are not to judge them. However, whenever someone does become a believer, we are supposed to judge them. And that's where calling people to a higher standard comes in line. And so I think a lot of times people think that if someone calls you out on your sin, that you're judging them. Um, yeah. No, not necessarily. Maybe, maybe I don't think it's we're judging you. I think it's more so, no, we believe God has more for you. And so therefore, we're going to hold you accountable to call you to a higher standard. And so, yeah, and I want to, uh, yeah, go real ahead. Quick, I want to say too that um, the reason that happens a lot of time is because calling someone judgmental is normally an easier way out than actually dealing with what you have to deal with, right? That's kind of like the safe thing. And I hate totally. to say it, but an easy way to point the finger at Christians is to just call them judgmental. So um, I totally, I totally get that response. And I want you, I, you're answering this right on. I just want to point that out too that that's why judgmental is always a topic that comes up, always one that gets get brought back to some of these topics just because it's so easy to be like oh you know they were being judgmental when really they were just trying to call you to the place that you should be or um you know just call you call you up yeah yeah totally um yeah so i i really i really believe that in the context of christianity we are constantly supposed to be encouraging one another calling each other Mm -hmm. to a higher standard but out of a heart of love out of out of a motivation of love and to but then also extending grace and to everyone out there who is not a believer, uh, we need to love them um, and and accept who they are as a person. We do not have to accept the sin, but accept who they are as a person. And let me give you yep. a, a prime example about this. Uh, 
we have a phenomenal relationship as a church with the LGBTQ community in Albany, an incredible relationship. Um, and we've actually had an issue where, where there was a conflict with someone who identified themselves as, uh, as gay, as someone in, involved in same sex, but because of our relationship with the community and they knew that we loved them and they knew that, that we cared for them and we wanted to be there for them, even if they didn't believe the same way that we believed, that, that tension that rose up actually did not hurt us in, the, in, our, in our church setting because we had invested in building relationships with people. And so I have people that I know in Albany who they know where I stand on this topic and I know where they stand on this topic, and we can still sit there, and they can ask questions about Jesus, and I can love them for who they are. Uh, yep. And I don't sit there and say, "You're going to burn in hell," you know. Um, yes. I'm, I'm I'm showing grace. I'm accepting them for who they are, not agreeing with their sin, but accepting them for who they are as a person, and then able to really enter into that dialogue. And and so that's just yep. one prime example uh, for that. That's good. That's good. Um, I hope so is. as we go to this, yeah. So as we go to this next question here, um, it's kind of got a, it's a longer question. So I want you to think about how this person is asking it and this the perspective they're coming from because I think it's great, but it's a lot. So I'm just gonna try to read this as best I can here. Um, so this person, you know, they said, "I am pro-choice and don't believe abortion should be included in our legal system." I don't believe I have the right to decide or judge someone's decision that should be between God, the patient, and the healthcare provider. I hide this belief from my Christian friends because their hate and disdain are evident. I feel alone in my walk right now and feel terrible. Um, so that's a lot of a question, and I totally get where this person's coming from. Um, so I want to. I'm interested to see what what you guys said. Uh yeah. So. <coughs> To be honest with you, I really wrestled with how to answer this question um, mm-hmm. because there's a lot that goes into play here. And uh, I say this, uh, first off, I just want to ask for anyone who's listening to this for you to extend grace to me as I try to kind of tackle this. And so let me put this in our our context here. If you're not listening uh, in New York, you may not understand the context. Our Albany campus is two blocks from the capital of New York where they just passed the Reproductive Health Care Act, which now it is legal in New York for you to abort a child up until birth. Literally, someone can be dilating and a child is about to come out. And if the woman says that I don't want to have the baby, they legally now have to abort the baby. On the flip side, there's also a portion in the law where if someone... um, Someone say someone gets in an accident who is pregnant and the baby dies. It used to be that you would get charged with manslaughter or murder in the first degree. There is now no legal repercussions at all if you kill a baby. Uh, And actually, this there was something that just happened in um, New York City (coughs) a week after the bill went into effect where someone. Someone was shot, the mother died, and the baby died, and they were originally going to charge the man uh, with first-degree murder of the child, the unborn child, but they actually had to remove that because of the new law. So this is a very heated topic, and if you've been listening to CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, basically any news station out there, uh, we are two blocks from what has been the um, point of conversation for the nation and honestly for a lot of religious leaders around the world. So that is our context with answering this question. All right. So uh, 
First off, there needs to be grace with this question. And for this person, what we said is if you were pro-choice, we need to be able to go to the table, focus on Jesus, and have a healthy dialogue around this conversation where someone who's pro-life and someone who's pro-choice can talk about this, excuse me, can talk about this without feeling um, judgment, wrath, or hate from the other person. There has to be that. And the church should be a safe place for there to be this type of discussion to be taking place. Uh, the The other thing is uh, I don't want anyone in our church to, to feel terrible or to walk around feeling like they have to hide their uh, personal beliefs from other people as they're wrestling with this. And obviously they're wrestling yep. with this because they ask the question. And so then comes into play, where does life begin? Does life begin at conception? Does life begin whenever there's a heartbeat at eight weeks? Does it begin at 21 or 24 weeks? Or does it begin whenever the child is finally delivered outside of the mother's womb? And so this is a question that is different for every person. And there are people that I know who they believe life begins at conception. And there are people I know who they begin life believes once the child is born. Scientifically, removing Christianity, though, you have to look at it. At eight weeks, a child has a heartbeat, has a nervous system, has brain waves, and can and has functioning kidneys. All of their major organs are working. They can actually feel pain. And so whenever you're taking the needle to do testing for uh, Down syndrome or any other issue that the, the child may have, literally the child flinches trying to flee from the needle and and they can science, scientifically prove that the child at eight weeks old in the mother's womb can feel pain. And so mm-hmm. that brings up the other the, the other aspect of it is like when do you really believe that uh, life begins? And this is a conversation that the church has been silent on, but the church needs to be able to have a healthy debate about with people. It's the same thing, and you know, uh, different, but not. It's different context, but same same conversation. Racial reconciliation. Yeah. Racial reconciliation is another issue where people need to be able to come to the table uh, and have a conversation about what other people view about. And so, answering this today, I was kind of like, all right, I know a predominant predominant populace in our church community vote democrat a, a predominant and and right now the Dem- democratic party was the law that ended up passing this but this is what i said um if you say i'm republican because i'm pro-life great that's that's totally fine however for the past two years up until the house finally got handed back over to uh the democrats the Republican Party had an opportunity to actually make laws and to try to stop the abortion push in America, and they did absolutely nothing. So this isn't mm-hmm. just a Republican issue or just a Democrat issue. This is also a Republican issue because both sides, uh, the Republican Party is very silent about it, and the Democratic Party is pushing for even more uh, progressive laws with this. Um, and And so with that speaking... This is something that personally is close to my heart. Uh, the doctor, whenever I was in my mom's womb, and I'm not going to get into it because it's a long story, but the doctor, whenever I was in my mom's womb, uh, was pushing for my mom to have an abortion. And I thank God that my mom did not have an abortion. I thank God that my mother and my father actually got into it with the doctor, left the doctor, and the doctor said to them, don't come back to me again. 
And so they actually had to find a new doctor. And so this is a very, very, very personal issue with me, just like it's a very personal issue with other people. Now, statistically speaking, one in four women have had an abortion, one in four women. And so I know for a fact, just straight from statistics, there are women in our church who have had an abortion. And with that, there has to be uh, care, there has to be um, counseling, there has to be restoration that happens with these women where this takes place. And with with everyone on all different aspects of it, this has to be a conversation that we are able to sit down and genuinely talk about looking through the lens of Scripture. And then the argument comes in, well, Scripture is not very clear about this, but Scripture does say, I knew you before you were formed in your mother's womb. And so, and the last thing I'll say about this, because I know we're running a few minutes late today, and that's okay. You guys just bear with us. Share this with your friends. Um, We are created in the image of God. This is the Imago Dei. This is big theological word, the Imago Dei. We are all created in the image of God. And so someone who is born with Down syndrome uh, or who is born with mental challenges or who is mentally, uh, you know, just, just can't function has more intrinsic value than the rarest animal on this earth. And the thing that saddens me is we are very, very, very vocal in our society about protecting animals, but we are not very, very vocal about protecting human life. And so big, big, big loaded question. And what I ended with today was, if you were this person, I want to have coffee with you because I want to be able to talk about this and to hear where you're coming from so you can hear where I'm coming from um, and we can truly dialogue about this through Scripture uh, and through the lens of Christianity and Jesus. And I think that's what it comes down to. Uh, in a non-aggressive, non-threatening, safe environment. Yeah, and I think that's, I think uh, was great was when uh, Rensselaer started answering this question, they immediately started out by saying, uh, you know, the fact that you feel alone is, is terrible above everything else, right? It doesn't matter if you, this goes with all these questions, right? It doesn't matter if you agree with the church or not, the church should make you feel like an outsider because you feel one way or the other, right? Um, and I think totally. that's 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 important. Um, but great answer because it is it is a long. Uh, you could talk forever about this topic, and it's that's why it's kind of the most debated thing I would say between the church and the state is is this topic. Um, yeah, yeah, and and let me just and let me just say this, and I'm going to give yeah. props to two families in our church. Um, so someone says, "Okay, I don't go through with abortion. I'm going to adopt." The church needs to be there to be able to step up for adoption. And I want to give a shout out to the Ross Bosom family and the Rice family who just in the past two weeks have both adopted children who came from very hard backgrounds uh, who they took in and they fostered. Literally one of them I think was 22 months. I don't remember the other, but they fostered and finally were able to adopt. And that's where the church needs to step up. And if you look historically speaking, that's where the church stepped up in the first century too. No, that's good. Um, so as you said, we're over time, but there's one more question I want to make sure we can ask, um, and that is, if someone is saved but commits suicide, where do they go? What does the Bible say on this topic? So the Bible does not say specifically uh, suicide. It uh, does not talk specifically about suicide. Uh, and then the argument is, well, it says do not murder. So you commit murder uh, to yourself. And so I just want to throw this out there. 
uh, Judas committed suicide right after he betrayed Jesus. And I've heard so many Christians say, well, Judas just went to hell. You know, that was God's plan. He was predestined to go to hell. And I would just say, do you really, do you really know that? Do you like really, really know that? Because if we believe that Jesus Christ died for the sins of mankind and we accept him and, and we believe that his <clears throat> his blood covers a multitude of sin and scripture even says he's forgiven us of our past, present, and future sins. You know, while we were still sinners, yet while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Does the blood of Christ not cover suicide if we are truly a follower of Jesus Christ? And then on the flip side, I believe mental illness is a very, very real thing. Uh, I know a lot of people say, well, they're just demonically possessed. And maybe that's the case for 10, 15% of the population. I don't know. Um, but speaking of that, uh, uh, not demonic possession, but of mental mental uh, disorders, um, I know that there are people who are depressed. I know that there are people who suffer from bipolar, who suffer from schizophrenia. I have people in my family who this is an issue for them. And I know someone who was a devout Christian, attended church, read her Bible, uh, was in group, uh, who struggled with depression and one day just got so depressed that she literally walked off a pier um, and drowned to death and committed suicide. And uh, we also know the pastor not too long ago who was battling depression, pastor of a megachurch, and he ended up killing himself because he couldn't deal with the pain of this world anymore. I don't believe that because they committed that act of murder upon themselves that God is like, well, you did that. Therefore, you're not going to go to heaven. I believe that God's grace is much uh, is more sufficient than that um, and looks past that and that there's a lot more going into play. Now, ultimately, do I know the answer to this? No, I don't know. Um, Mm -hmm. But I believe that there are some Christians who have said that if you commit suicide, you're just going to die and burn in hell. And I, I have a hard time, scripturally speaking, looking at the grace of God, the atonement for our sins, of coming to that conclusion. And this is a conversation uh, that if someone is contemplating suicide, that people need to be able to sit down and and ultimately talk about and get them help. Because yep. suicide is not, and I just need to say this, suicide is not the answer. Um, and, and again, we just have to have a safe place where we can or we can talk about this. And so, yep. yeah, so that's how I answered that. What did they, what did they say at Rensselaer real, real quick? Cause I know we're a few minutes over, but yeah, I think pretty much the same thing. And, and Ryan, I think answered this one and basically started out by um, to him. It's an easy question. Cause there's no, there's no direct scripture on it. Right. So, um, you know, he understood, he went into the whole, the whole mindset of uh, everyone's thoughts isn't their own. Right. So just because you, you feel the, the, um, I'm losing the term here, but just because you might have the thoughts about suicide or, or killing yourself doesn't mean they're from you. Um, and that kind of opens the realm into a couple of different things. So I think you answered it well, and, and we pretty much hit on the, the same things there. Yeah. And, um, and let me just say this. Look, yeah. I've been on medication that has made me suicidal. I was on uh, right, pregnisone. Exactly. Yep. <clears throat> I was on pregnisone for a week. And the first three three days, I thought I was invincible. I cleaned the house. I was working on the house. I was hitting the gym hard. By day five or day six, it was like three in the morning, and I was texting one of my best friends saying, I literally just want to end my life. My life sucks right now. I hate it. Medication did that to me, which was supposed to help my body. And so Mm -hmm. um, what if someone's on a medication long enough that it actually 
changes their psyche and then they go through that. Does that mean that they lose their salvation? You know? Right. Um, yep. And so, so yeah. Yep. So that's a go. great point. Yeah, that's good. Um, I want to thank everyone for listening to this week. I know it was a little bit longer than normal, but we think these were great questions to, to go over and, and fill you in on. Um, if you have any more questions or want to hear more about one in particular, you can email us podcast at insideoutgroup.org or visit the website insideoutgroup.org and click the contact button at the top. If you want to hear more from Michael Moore, you can find him anywhere on social media at Mike Moore ALB or the real We thank you all for listening and we'll see you next week. Thank you.